Good evening. Jury deliberations in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse continue for a third day. The Arbery um, case goes to uh, the defense rest in the case of Ahmed Arbery, the killers of Ahmed Arbery, and a civil trial in Charlotte's Virginia uh, shows the true colors of the organizers of the Unite to Write rally. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with WBAI News for Thursday, November 18th. 2021. The jury in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, finished another day of deliberations this afternoon. After more than 23 hours, the jurors began again, begin again tomorrow at 9 a.m. Protesters, both in support of the armed vigilante who shot dead two anti-racism protesters and wounding a third, and opposition, the opposition opponents gathered outside the courtroom waiting for the verdict. Yesterday, two people were arrested after Black Lives Matter protesters clashed with supporters of Rittenhouse. Yeah. Look at this cum dumpster right here. You cum dumpster? Your mom was. She hey, was I can't be a cum dumpster. You are? How? Uh, how? I don't have a vagina. You What's up? Stop! Stop! Get off my stop. Stop. stop! Back up! Police arrived to break up both sides and arrested a 20-year-old and a 34-year-old. That's according to the county sheriff. 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 at the time, carrying an AR-15-style rifle with the express purpose of protecting property after nights of unrest after the police shooting of Jacob Blake. The three victims were Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, who were killed, engaged Kroskrotz. Grosskreutz, who was seriously wounded. Meanwhile, the ever-valuable Judge Bruce Schrader, uh, Judge Bruce Schrader, angrily banned the news organiza- organization MSNBC today from entering the courthouse until the end of the trial. I have instructed that no one from MSNBC News will be permitted in this building for the duration of this trial. Uh, this is a very serious matter, and I don't know what the ultimate truth of it is. That someone who is following uh, the jury bus, uh, that is a very, ex- it's extremely serious matter and uh, will be referred to the uh, proper authorities for further action. Uh, the police, when they stopped him because he was following in a distance of about a, a block and uh, went through a red light, pulled him over and inquired of him what was going on and he gave that information and stated that he had been instructed by Ms. Bayon in New York to follow the jury bus. Uh, The matter is uh, under further investigation at this point, and he was ticketed for uh, violating a traffic control signal. Uh, He's not here today from what I'm told. And that's Judge Bruce Schrader. Police reported a man they say was working for the cable news network was pulled over for a traffic violation yesterday and suspected of following the jury transport van. A spokesperson for NBC News, the sister network of MSNBC, identified the individual as a freelancer. And in Brunswick, Georgia, defense attorneys rested their case in the Ahmed Arbery trial today after calling just seven witnesses, including the shooter, who testified that Arbery didn't threaten him in any way before he pointed his shotgun at the 25-year-old black man. And then Mr. Arbery is coming back to me, yelling at him, stop, directing to me. He wasn't going to the left. He wasn't going to the right. He was coming straight to me that first time. 
I was thinking, all right, he's going to try to get in this truck, or he's going to try to attack me or my dad or who knows what. He was acting weird. He was acting funny that when I was trying to talk to him prior. So I'm on alert. He turns, runs off, comes back. I don't. I'm sure I saw Mr. Brian's truck in this in this instance, but I was focused on what I perceived as a threat. And uh, that's the uh, defendant, one of the defendants in the case, under cross-examination by the prosecution on his second day of testimony. Travis McMichael said that Arbery hadn't shown a weapon or spoken to him at all before McMichael raised his shotgun. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley scheduled closing arguments in the trial for Monday, setting up the possibility of verdicts before Thanksgiving for the three white men charged with murder in Arbery's death. Cell phone video from the February 23, 2020 shooting replayed in court today shows Arbery running around the back of McMichael's pickup truck after McMichael first points the shotgun while standing next to the open driver's side door. Aubrey then runs around the passenger side as McMichael moves to the front and the two come face to face. After that, the truck blocks any view of them until the first gunshot sounds. And in another prominent trial stemming from the growing divide between the ultra-right and progressive Americans, a group of anti-fascists has sued the organizers of a deadly rally held in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017. The lead organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville have been sued along with 10 organizations, 14 individuals, including prominent fascists Jason Kessler and Richard Spencer. It's in federal court. On August 11th and 12th, 2017, a torchlight rally of hundreds of vowed fascists chanting Jews will not replace us wound through the city center in a torchlight rally. The right-wing march culminated in the surrounding and beating of a small group of counter-demonstrators and the brutal beating of DeAndre Harris. And the next day, the murder of Heather Heyer by a, a car that was driven into a group of people. The plaintiffs are nine Virginia residents from varying backgrounds. They charged the defendants, conspired to commit acts of violence, to deny black people and their allies their civil rights. They're also seeking damages for injuries they sustained. Lawyers for the plaintiffs hinged their case on an 1871, that's called the Reconstruction Era law, known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, which aimed to protect black people in the South from being terrorized by the Klan. In the opening days of the trial, graphic videos, chat postings, and emails were displayed to prove the organizers planned and carry out violence. Audio from the night of August 12, 2017 was played of Richard Spencer, a prominent white supremacist. He ranted and raged to an approving audience of racists as word of the car attack and Heather Heyer's death spread around the world. Richard Spencer, a prominent white supremacist, I think it'd be fair to say fascist, Nazi advocate. You may remember then President Donald Trump back in 2017 said there were very fine people on both sides of the divide in Charlottesville equating 
anti-racist protesters with the likes of Richard Spencer. One of the attorneys for the defendants is Holocaust denier James Kolnick. Previously, he said, my willingness to get involved is to oppose Jewish influence in society. In an interview, he says no conspiracy to commit violence existed in Charlottesville at all. But that particular legal principle that you can't say certain things on the Internet or you're liable for what happens in real life would be very interesting. The most they've said is we want a white ethno state. And then when they've been asked, how will you accomplish that on the territory of the United States? They say, we don't care. You know, first, we need the principle to be admitted and we'll work out the details later. And when it's pointed out to them, this necessarily involves violence. You're necessarily going to have to physically remove people from certain parts of the United States. What if they resist? You know, that's a government level thing, right? They're not saying private violence. At no point have any of them argued in favor of, of private violence. That's Holocaust denier James Kolnick, a lawyer for the defendants. Meanwhile, during the trial, defendants have been using racial slurs, name-dropped Hitler's work Mein Kampf, and promoted one of their broadcasts. The lead plaintiff in the civil case is attorney Elizabeth Sines, a lawsuit and counter-protester in 2017. She captured video of the car used by James Fields to plow into human bodies. Fields was uh, later convicted of murder. On her testimony, Sines broke down crying as she recalled what she describes as the most traumatizing experience of her life. She said it sounded like if you would take a metal baseball bat and slide it across a wooden fence. Sounds like thuds, she said in describing the car attack. You could hear it before you saw it. Four years later, Sine says she still suffers from insomnia, nightmares, and triggers. She says she was diagnosed with PTSD and major depressive disorder. And in Washington, a divided House moved towards passage of the Democrats' expansive social environment bill, Build Back Better, Today, as new cost estimates from Congress's top fiscal analysts suggest that moderate lawmakers' worries about spending and deficits would be calmed, giving the bill the votes it needs for passage. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told lawmakers in a letter tonight that the chamber would soon begin final debate on the sprawling legislation. That would put the House on the doorstep of finally approving the package, a top priority for President Joe Biden. That would bolster child care assistance, create free preschool, curb seniors' prescription drug costs, and beef up efforts to slow climate change. Pelosi says a vote may come tonight. We're awaiting the just a few more, one more committee and a piece of another committee from the Senate for the scrub. In case you're interested in the timing of this, we expect by this afternoon to have the information we need uh, from the uh, Ways and Means Committee. As soon as we get the scrub information, we can proceed with our manager's amendment to uh, proceed to a vote on the new rule with the manager's amendment reflecting the scrubs. Not any process, not any policy changes, but just some technicalities about committee jurisdiction, etc. And then um, we will we will vote on the rule and then on the bill. Those votes hopefully will take place later this afternoon. And that's Nancy Pelosi. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, meanwhile, yesterday supported repeal of the 2002 U.S. authorization for war in Iraq and said he planned to bring the measure to vote this year. That's the AUMF. It was passed in 2002, as uh, reported, in order to give the president at that time wide powers and being able to launch wars in the name of the war on terror. And that uh, 
that uh, legislation has been in power ever since. It, it bypasses uh, what had been the norm in the past of uh, congressional approval needed for the U.S. got itself into a war that was eliminated. Uh, it uh, several on several occasions uh, over the last decade or so, there have been attempts to uh, with to withdraw the AUMF to uh, to shut it down. Uh, those have failed repeatedly. Uh, yesterday, Senator Schumer said this time for sure. The AUMF is going out. We're also working with the Speaker and our colleagues in the House and Republican colleagues in the Senate to find a path forward to get this important legislation over the finish line before the end of the year. It's also my intention to have an amendment vote on the bipartisan legislation repealing the 2002 Iraq War AUMF. This measure was reported on a bipartisan basis out of the Foreign Relations Committee earlier this year. And the NDAA is the logical place to have that vote on the Senate floor. The Iraq war has been over for nearly a decade. An authorization passed in 2002 is no longer necessary in 2021. And in no way will repealing this measure impact our ability to keep Americans safe nor impact our relationship with Iraq. We will have other votes on amendments on the defense bill as well. I look forward to working with our colleagues on the other side of the aisle to move this important process forward. So now I'm going to move cloture on the NDA. I have some words to say about my dear colleague, Senator Leahy, some uh, words to say on Build Back Better, but I'll come at a later moment because I know my friend from Tennessee is waiting uh, to do those things tonight. Now, I move to proceed to legislative session. And that's Senator Chuck Schumer, the NDAA, basically the defense budget, it's the highest this year ever. It was the largest defense budget ever passed, about to be passed in uh, in American history, close to $800 billion. The Defense Department got everything it wanted, plus more that was added. Stuff that they didn't want was added into the bill by congressmen and senators willing to uh, do the best they can to help the uh, military in their own way. But Christian Sorensen, former U.S. Air Force Arab linguist who did several tours of duty in Qatar and is knowledgeable of U.S. policy in the Middle East, he's uh, part of something called the Eisenhower Network, a a bunch of uh, veterans we've had and been featuring on this news broadcast who give us a chance to look at American military and foreign policy from the inside, from the officers and the uh, soldiers who actually go there and fight the wars that the United States government begins. Christian Sorensen says, although he speaks for the Eisenhower Network, in fact, Eisenhower, Truman and the other 1950s folks who set into motion a lot of the foreign policies that we are uh, living today were wrong and uh, Maybe they're proud of what they achieved, but from the point of view of the fighter, of the citizen, it's not so great. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. Take any uh, verbal commitments to repeal the 2002 AUMF with uh, a lot of salt, many grains of salt, because first of all, they've talked about this before and they've never um, repealed it, and it's going to be presented as an amendment within the current NDAA. So there's plenty of opportunity to get rid of that amendment in committee, which is usually how they pass the NDAA. They goes, uh, it's passed in the House, then it gets passed in the Senate, or vice versa. Then it goes in the committee uh, by camera roll, uh, behind closed doors, and they hash out the amendment. So that's number one. Number two, I would say that the overall military-industrial complex knows that the fine print in the repeal will 
not reduce the overall U.S. military's global reach, nor the military budget. Remember, this NDAA is a record budget, higher than any peak at the Cold War adjusted for inflation, and higher than anything under the uh, Trump administration as well. And so we need to be we need to be very careful there. What the overall context is is we are in the middle of a new Cold War against Beijing and Moscow. Why is that? Why we have a situation where the defense budget that's proposed is even larger than last year, despite the fact we just ended the United States just ended a war. Correct. Under the permanent warfare state that we are in, the role of Congress is to aid and abet that permanent warfare state by passing legislation favorable to the war industry and favorable to the Pentagon. And so, even though there is no um, more presence in Afghanistan, on the ground at least, there still is a, uh, a, a repositioning of troops in the Persian Gulf. And um, so the withdrawal is more of a repositioning. And then on top of that, we have um, just nonstop uh, aggression in and around the new enemies of the day, Russia and China. And so we just need to... Uh, to step back and understand that if president eisenhower was alive today if general macarthur was alive today if president truman were alive today would they say what they predicted happened happened would they be happy with what things are how things are developing with the u.s military now that's difficult because all of those people have despite their rhetoric their good rhetoric on occasion they have all contributed to the permanent warfare state in their own way. They all expanded it. I mean, under Truman, there was the uh, establishment of the National Security Act of 1947, which uh, created the Air Force, um, entrenched the standing military presence that we have, allowed the war industry to expand, and established CIA. And though he later rued that decision, and he made it clear in U.S. periodicals and op-ed pieces, you know, they, um, all of those gentlemen that you named have um, did more to harm the public uh, overall public good in the terms of uh, in terms of militarization of our society than helped what do we need now we need a new economic system as long as and this is very uncomfortable to um, to confront but as long as there is a capitalist economic system in which the working class produce the profit and the ruling class take the profit and the ruling class guide the industries not the working class the ruling class guides the industries then we are going to continue to live in a permanent warfare state. And the permanent warfare state, by the way, is fascist. Fascism is the blending of big business and federal government with a lot of nationalism sprinkled on top. And that is exactly what we've, we've had since the end of the Second World War uh, in 1945 and the uh, establishment of the National Security Act in 1947. All right. Anything you'd like to add? No. I just, uh, you know, God help us. And that is uh, uh, Christopher uh, Sorensen, and he is a former Air Force veteran and uh, a spokesperson for the Eisenhower Network, discussing the uh, move yesterday by Chuck Schumer, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, to, uh, to, as he says, uh, finally – put an end to the uh, authorization of use of military force, the AUMF, 
which has been uh, responsible for the legal legally given legal uh, powers to the government to pretty much invade anywhere in the world it wanted without congressional approval. And the United Nations Security Council today condemned quote, in the strongest terms, the intrusion and seizure of the now-closed United States Embassy in Yemen's capital and the detention of dozens of local employees by the country's, uh, what they call here, Iran-backed Houthis. A statement approved by all 15 members of the UN's most powerful body called for an immediate withdrawal of all Houthi elements from the premises and the immediate and safe release of those still under detention. Meanwhile, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price told reporters last week that diplomatic efforts have succeeded in securing the release of most of the detained employees, but that some remain in custody. He says that work was being done to free the others. The intrusion into the U.S. Embassy comes after a Saudi-led coalition carried out a wide operation against targets in Yemen after intercepting and destroying a drone that attempted to attack Saudi Arabia's Abha International Airport. That's according to Saudi state media. The coalition was, uh, according to Saudi state news agency SPA, uh, taking operational measures to deal with the sources of hostile cross-border attacks. The coalition said later it conducted a wide operation on military targets in the Yemeni provinces of Sana'a, Damar, Sada, and al Jaf in response to ballistic and drone threats. That's also according to Saudi state TV. Workshops at warehouses for ballistic missiles, drones, and communication systems were among the targets destroyed. The coalition added that it targeted what was described as a secret facility for experts from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in Lebanon's Hezbollah, who it accuses of being involved in hostile attacks against the kingdom. The military coalition, led by Saudi Arabia, intervened in Yemen in March 2015 after the Iran-aligned Houthi group ousted the government from the capital, Sana'a. Saudi Arabia says Hezbollah arms, supplies, and trains the Houthis. But it seems like the the real target of the war has been millions of civilians in Yemen who have been uh, forced into the most uh, one of the largest and worst uh, human rights situations uh, in the entire world at this time. Now in its seventh year, the conflict in Yemen continues to have a devastating impact on people's well-being, particularly on their mental health. Despite the needs, many people are unable to access vital mental health care for a range of reasons, including a lack of awareness about the care that's available and stigma against people with mental health issues. Uh, the mental health care is a core component of the group Doctors Without Borders, uh, MSF is known as, am I going to try the French, uh, their response in Yemen in Haja, a city in the northwest of the country, uh, MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, runs a mental health clinic in Al-Gamuri Hospital. And I'm going to try here. Nicholas Papakrisostomu is head of mission in Yemen for Doctors Without Borders. He says mental health is a major human impact of war. About 45% of the patients we're seeing in one of the largest hospitals of the city, in Al-Gamuri Hospital in Haja, Okay, are critically affected patients. Now, this statistic alone is an outlier. We, we shouldn't be seeing half of our patients almost at a critical state. Normally, WHO statistics for areas of conflict around the world place that sort of, uh, shall we say, um, level of affectation at about 5%. The fact that we're seeing half of our patients critically affected points to one thing. They are really late 
seeking out help. And by the time we see them, they have advanced so much that they're critically affected. And Dr. I'll try again, Papa Chris Osotumu went on to describe a patient of his who uh, had uh, really been uh, crushed uh, under the strain of the war, but managed with help to recover. One day, because there was a structure next to her house that was involved in the war, they they decided to bomb. So the place is destroyed, and along with the target goes her house, her belongings, um, uh, and she has to uh, displace herself. They have to move out. Um, and they reach, uh, you know, um, they walk, they, they reach another place, uh, and then they arrive to Haja, which is the city where we, we are present. So she is lost. She doesn't know how to um, come to terms with what happened to her from one day to the next. She's depressed. depressed. She has um, suicidal attempts, uh, tendencies. She is very difficult to control her uh, temper with her family, with her children. And her husband is also affected. He does not recognize his problem. She hears about this psychiatric uh, support and psychological support that MSF provides. And she begins coming to the sessions. Um, She comes to the hospital, she's diagnosed, and then she's she's helped by by the personnel. Um, She's feeling a little better as time goes by. She now found a job as a seamstress, okay? She's recommencing a, a life that lost, a life that was lost, okay? This is one of the many, many success stories. It, it'll take years. It'll take years, and it has taken years. I mean, the bombing was in 2018, so it has taken years for her to, to sort of uh, um, overcome her traumatism. And Nicholas Papa, Chrysos Tomu is head of mission in Yemen for Doctors Without Border. He's based in Haja, a city in the northwest of the country where they run a mental health health clinic in Al-Gamuri Hospital for victims of what is the world's greatest human rights uh, problem in the world. A finally and finally. A deep partial lunar eclipse will darken the moon over much of the globe on November 19th. Overnight on November 18th for North America, most locations will see up to 97% of the moon slip into the Earth's shadow. And North America has the best location to see the entirety of the eclipse. Um, you can find maps and timing for the eclipse on several websites on the uh, available. It's an exceptionally deep partial eclipse with what they call an umbral eclipse magnitude of 0.9742. In other words, 97% of the moon will be covered by Earth's dark umbral shadow with just a thin sliver of the moon exposed to direct sun and maximum eclipse. The rest of the moon should take on the characteristically ruddy colors of a total lunar eclipse. I'll definitely be out there. I hope you are as well. And that's some of the news for Thursday, November 18, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineer is Rachel Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>